Jonathan Edwards, the brilliant 18th century theologian, thinker, and prolific writer, left an extensive literary legacy behind when he died in 1758 at the age of just 54. Edwards' writings have since been gathered together into 73 volumes, a vast literary legacy that is more accessible today than ever before, and that is all due to the painstaking work of the folks at the Jonathan Edwards Center at Yale University. To date, they have edited and formally published 26 of those volumes, and the other 47 volumes are largely unedited electronic collections, but all of them, all 73 volumes, have been made available online for free at edwards.yale.edu. As a novice Edwardsian, I like to read the Yale works, and when I do, I am constantly brought back time and time again to the very heart of his entire theology, and that core for Edwards is God. God in his beautiful holiness, God in his full glory, and God in his three-person nature as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. An especially brilliant picture of our triune God is painted with words by Edwards in his essay on the Trinity published in volume 21 of the Yale Works. Edwards' written legacy in general and his teachings on the nature of the Trinity in particular have left an indelible mark on just about everything that we do here at Desiring God. But in light of the massive written legacy that Edwards has left behind, just how central to him was the Trinity, and how does that priority for Edwards impact all the other doctrines? How does it inform his understanding of creation and redemption and even his teachings on what we can expect to experience in heaven? We put Jonathan Edwards scholar Dr. Michael McClymond on the line, and we asked him these very questions. Dr. McClymond is the author of the new book, The Theology of Jonathan Edwards, a large and intimidating 800-page volume published by Oxford Press, and a book he co-wrote with Dr. Gerald McDermott. The book is really a collection of 45 brief chapters that each address one of many different theological themes that emerge in the writings of Edwards. For its intimidating length, the book by McClymond and McDermott is surprisingly clear, engaging, readable, and it makes for an accessible introduction to Jonathan Edwards' thought. From his residence in New Haven, Connecticut, I asked Dr. McClymond about Edwards' doctrine of the Trinity. Our conversation began when I asked him when, for Edwards, the Trinity became so central in his life and thought. Well, we don't really have much access, I think, to Edwards' heart and mind um, before his uh, experience of awakening that happened when he was in his late teens, as recounted in his personal narrative. And But what we see there is, is an experience of, he says, the glory of the divine being. And what's interesting in Edwards' vocabulary is glory is so often associated with Father, Son, and Spirit. Um, he, we're very much in the thought world of the Gospel of John, and particularly the 17th chapter, where Jesus prays that the, the glory that he had before the world was created would be, would be shared, would be imparted to the disciples. So I think that there's some clues in the language that his experience of seeing the glory of God awakened him in some sense to the, 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 the one, oneness and threeness of God. Um, he doesn't say much about the Trinity, um, and as he's describing his experiences uh, before his awakening, he he says that he 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 had trouble with the doctrine of predestination, uh, God's sovereignty, and so we're a little bit may, maybe more in the realm of sort of God God um, the Father. But but after he has this um, experience, he begins using uh, in his narrative of his of his early experiences, he begins talking more about the Trinity. Uh, and then he talks about this special vision and view he had of the third person of the Trinity, which becomes a real emphasis, is the, the dignity and honor of uh, of the Holy Spirit. 
So the only, you know, and the the, the, the uh, personal notebooks and so on, those begin after Edward's own experience, experience of conversion or spiritual awakening. So we don't really have that much access to a before moment. The Trinitarian nature of God would eventually take a central place in his theology. In your own words, just how central was the Trinity for Edwards? Well, it's it's a framework. It's a framework for understanding the history of redemption. Edwards' great theme that that he was going to devote his himself to writing about at the very end of his life that he take. You know, we're talking about basically you know, 4,000 pages uh, in TypeScript when I first read it before it was published of these personal notes and so on. Those were all building on this one theme of the history of the work of redemption. And Edwards understands that all in a Trinitarian fashion. So Edwards is just really centuries ahead of his time. And, you know, in the mid-20th century, the the Catholic theologian Karl Rahner famously said that the the uh, ontological trinity is the economic trinity. The economic trinity is the ontological trinity. Well, that's very abstract language. But what what he was trying to say is that the the three co-equal, co-divine, co-eternal persons are um, at the same time our clue to understanding the the process of of salvation and God's way God's way of redeeming the world and and that's very much true for for Edward so in the 20th century shift in people like Karl Barth Karl Rahner the so-called narrative theology movement in the 80s and 90s that's really all centered on the notion that um that redemption is a story that it has a, essentially a narrative Form, form and format, and that it can't be understood without invoking the Trinitarian distinctions. The Father who sends the Son, the Son who ascends, the Spirit who is poured out at Pentecost, and then the interrelationship of, of the three in, in salvation. So, it, so it's, 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 um, it's part of the grammar of the language of salvation, the Trinity. Speaking more broadly for a moment, how does the, the Trinitarian nature of the living God divide him from all other forms of, of single-person or mono-person deities? Well, there's going to be, uh, there's really going to be a full-scale answer to that um, in uh, Jerry McDermott's new book with Harold Netland, and so I'll put in a little word just for my co-author's book, and I've seen just parts of that in manuscript that's coming out with Oxford University Press, and it's, the title is A Trinitarian Theology of World Religions, and the very first chapter is on the Trinity. Um, I think it's I think it's uh, it's a it's a it's a really basic point. If, if you look at the history of theology, Schleiermacher, who was the founder of the sort of, of modern or, or modernist or liberal theology, he did not even discuss the Trinity in any depth in the early part of his 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 work of Christian theology called the Christian faith. He saved it as an appendix at the end, and then you get to the end and you find out that he's basically a civilian. That is that he thought of Father, Son, and Spirit as three different modes rather than three real distinct persons within God. Karl Barth put the Trinity right back at the foundation at the very beginning of the way that we think about God, and there's been this exciting revival among Protestant, Catholic, Evangelical, Charismatic theologians of Trinitarian theology in the 20th century. So um, I think one of the things that the systematic theologians of the last generation or two have shown is that really the Trinity is is, is, is foundational. Um, Islam and Judaism both offer us a God who is who is uh, who is merciful, but a God who remains in heaven, the God who does not enter into and share in our human experience in a in a in a human way. I mean, this is. One of the very clear points, uh, the doctrine of the Incarnation is really foundational 
uh, to the Christian understanding of God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. John 1.14 is just a, a key pivotal assertion. Um, if, you read, if you go back and read Augustine, he says... Um, Talk about the first gospel, uh, the, fir- the first chapter in John, and he says that, you know, in the beginning was the Word. He said, well, Plato kind of said something like that, and the Word was with God. He said, yeah, that's in Plato. Uh, the Word was God, and Augustine said, well, yeah, that's sort of, I kind of got that in Plato. And then he comes to the verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and he says, Plato never told me that. So that's a distinctive thing. You have some intimations of something like an incarnation, the Hindu's doctrine of the avatars, but if you look at those closely, they don't really um, replicate what you have in the Christian message. For instance, there's a Hindu myth in which the world is, 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 in th- is threatened by a flood, and Vishnu, one of the major gods of Hinduism, takes the form of a fish and swallows up the water, rescues the world. But then, poof, Vishnu just goes back to being what he's always been. There is no permanent um, change that takes place in the nature of Vishnu. So when the Word became flesh human flesh, the Word never ceased to be flesh. He, 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 is, he is human eternally. And that's the glory of the Christian message, God becoming fully one of us. Part of what distinguishes the triune God seems to be that it's rooted in an eternal love. Uh, Edwards majors on this theme. What, what does the eternal love of God for himself, within himself, this plurality of persons, what, is it, what does this imply? Well, it, 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 one, of the, one of the things it implies is, first of all, God's independence of the world. God can be and is a, a fully sufficient in his loving character apart from the world. In other words, to put it in layman terms, God wasn't lonely. God didn't have to create the world in order to have someone to love. But this love uh, antedated, it preceded uh, the creation of the world itself. And what it means also is that the love that we enter into that's promised in, in Christ to us in, in the words of the gospel, the promises of Scripture, has an ultimate rooting, an ontological you know, grounding in the very nature of the ultimate reality, which is God. I mean, it's, just, it's, it's, as, it's as firmly grounded as anything could possibly be. Edward, when he talks about love, as we discussed in the chapter on love in our book, he, he, he begins not with God's love for s- sinful humanity, he begins with the Father's love for, this, for the Son. That, that's the starting point for understanding what love is, and that completely shifts the, the message of the Gospel from what could be a very human-centered message of, uh, you know, God is there to meet our needs, to fulfill us, to, to one that is, that is very God-centered, very theocentric. To someone who has never heard of this doctrine of the Trinity before, who does not have the theological and the biblical heritage that I take for granted too often, how would you explain the nature of God to them? How would you explain this to someone who has never been exposed to the nature of the Trinity, maybe even to a non-Christian? I guess to explain the Trinity, one is definitely challenged to come up with an adequate metaphor. Most of the metaphors veer into either three parts. You know, you hear the the egg with the egg yolk and egg white and the, you know the the shell that kind of thing or or else some kind of mode water is ice it's steam it's liquid water one of the better analogies i've used that i've that i've come across coming from the early church is that of the sun someone walks out into the sunlight and they say the sun is warm and what they mean they're not referring probably to the the you know the star that's shining 
uh, 93 million miles away. Um, they, but there, there is this, that, that, the sun itself uh, shining the light could be compared to the Father. The light streaming out from the sun could is like the S, as the sunlight coming out is like the S-O-N, sun, that emerges from the sun. And then there's also the manifestation of that light. I feel warmth on my skin. That's like the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is, is in effect, kind of like the manifest presence of the warmth, the sun, streams out from the Father. You have to picture the sun um, has always been there. It's always been shining. There was never a time that it wasn't shining. That begins to give you an idea of the notion of the of the relationship of the three. But I think in some sense, because this is a doctrine of revelation, I don't think we probably, it's probably best, uh, a good idea for us with a non-Christian person to just try to give one rational explanation or even one analogy after another. I think we have to immerse ourselves actually in, in the text of Scripture itself. And I often will turn people to John 14 through 17, because that's a portion of Scripture in which you see the whole uh, interrelationship of Father, Son, and Spirit laid out with great depth and, and, and intricacy. Scripture is so central whenever we are discussing the nature of God, and so I'd like to ask you, in your own estimation, how biblical is Jonathan Edwards' doctrine of the Trinity? How much of his theology here is um, informed reasoning from Scripture? How much of this is, is taken from his raw exegesis of the Bible? Well, Ed- Edwards uh, had a rather strong uh, rational confidence. He, he believed that the human mind, uh, under the regenerating impact of the Holy Spirit, the converted mind, if you will, really had the ability to take the data, the language of Scripture, and to begin to reason. You know, from that, I one of the phrases that I use for him is um, dialectical fearlessness. That's the willingness to follow an argument out wherever it would lead, even if it seemed to be going in an unusual direction. Um, he would. He was not. He he was confident that that at the end of the day. Um, if one was reasoning accurately and clearly and, and grounded in Scripture, that uh, one would not would not go astray. So Edwards does there there is the the foundation of his teaching on the Trinity is certainly based on Scripture, but there are he talks about God's you know the the Holy Spirit and and Son as a sort of act of the Father and develops a certain meta, developing a certain metaphysics of the disposition of God reflected in the act, the act of begetting the Son. And at that point, of course, he's getting into metaphysical categories, just as Thomas Aquinas did, Thomas drawing on Aristotle's notion of, you know, of substance and and matter, hylomorphism, to use a technical language. You can, you can only go so far in a, a theoretical reflection on the Trinity without using invoking some kind of philosophical category. So he was willing to do that, and that would mark him out from some Protestants, I think he went quite a bit further than, let's say, Calvin did in that respect. Calvin often said that he wanted to respect the mystery of God and not delve, you know, not be like uh, what the metaphor of, of uh, ancient myth of Icarus, you know, the one who flew too close to the sun and who the wax in his wings melted and he plunged into the sea. I think that was Calvin's notion. If you tried to get too close to the uh, the the reality of God, you'd get you know get singed, you'd get burned up. <laughs> But Edwards, Edwards didn't seem to have that same fear. He would go as far as reason possibly could in, in trying to unfold the mystery of God. Think of the treatise on the end of for which God created the world. I mean, that's a question that really, um, 
you, you know, that many Protestant thinkers didn't even feel that we had the right to ask. We just sort of have to start after the fact that God, for whatever reason, did create the world. Edwards wanted to say, well, why? And so in that sense, he's closer to, on in that aspect of his theology, not so much his theology of grace, but his reliance on on philosophical reasoning. He's closer to, to Anselm, to Thomas Aquinas, uh, let us say, than he is to Luther or to uh, to Calvin or Barth. And that leads right into my next question, which is, so so why did God create the world? I think Edward's answer is a more elaborate one, but it's pretty close. Augustine said, because he is good, therefore you exist. That it is it is, a, it is an overflow. Uh, Edward uses the term emanation. Um, that kind of bothered some uh, more traditional Calvinists. I don't think he means that, and certainly didn't mean that in a pantheistic way. But there is a he uses the image in the treatise on the end of creation of the overflowing fountain. At one point, he even talks about a tree growing out, and and that 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 seems very odd that he would consider like the God as the trunk and the world as the branches. That's just one analogy that he uses. But he he emphasized to to a greater degree than some Reformed thinkers the continuity between God and the world that God has made. So, but but essentially, it's a, it's um, you know. The old um, Princeton Seminary uh, faculty member Cornelius Van Til would call called this the full bucket paradox. You know, God's bucket of glory is already full. So how could the creation of the world add anything to God's glory? And in some sense, you have to say, well, it can't. But if you imagine that full bucket, a full pail, put a garden hose into it and turn the hose on, the bucket overflows because the the added water goes goes spilling out. And so, in a sense, the 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 uh, the the um, you know the, the glory is increased, but by overflowing beyond God. Now there's there's a paradox here because, in one sense, you you can't really say that God. You say that God created the world because of external um, good that existed outside of God. Then you, that could imperil the sufficiency of God Himself. But if you say, on the other hand, that there wasn't anything outside of God that motivated God, then that then you. Then it sounds like the creation of the world is an accident. So, in any case, our book we get into some of the kind of elaborate uh, discussion at that point. But that's a that's a that's a challenging one. I did my doctoral dissertation on creation, and so I looked at that from a number of different angles. So, for Edwards, God creates in order to share Himself. Is that, is that accurate? Well, to yes, yes, uh, an overflow of God's goodness. God's and Edwards talked about the goodness of God the happiness of God, the joy in God, the, the highest end, at one point he says in the end of creation, the, high, the bullseye, if you will, at which God aimed at creating the world was the knowledge of himself, uh, the appreciative knowledge, not just intellectual knowledge, but an appreciative, responsive knowledge in the hearts and minds of elect creatures that God had created. Um, and and Edwards Edwards then deals with various objections. He said, did God need an you know an eternal cheering squad you know in order to be God? But when what Edwards says, he's not embarrassed to say that God, yes, God desired for His own goodness to be known, and God delights in Himself, which sounds narcissistic. But Edwards says there's nothing greater than God for God to delight in. So and which you know 
I have to say, very clearly intersects with, you know, of course, with uh, uh, with uh, John Piper's thought that many because of the whole idea of desiring God, Christian hedonism, and so on, and then his own approach to this treatise on the end of creation really connects the God's delight in Himself and our delight in God, and, and they're they're flip sides of the of the very same uh, teaching and line of thought in Edwards. It seems like for Edwards, God's very nature as a triune God defines the very nature of heaven. Explain that for us for a moment. Why for Edwards does the nature of God shape what we can expect to experience in heaven for all eternity? Edwards' notion of heaven is is not of being alone with one individual being alone with God forever. You know, I I I, I use kind of tongue and somewhat tongue in cheek the analogy of the kind of the movie theater view of heaven, you know. You're sitting seeing this the glory of God on the screen and you want to turn and talk to your neighbor and the person goes, Shh, you know, be quiet. How long? Forever. You know, as if you're just looking in one direction, not interacting with one another. Edwards' heaven is much more like a family reunion. In fact, I'd even say like a little bit like an Italian family reunion. Everyone, yeah, yeah, they're coming together, hugging, they're embracing. It's like there's there's a lot of uh, relationality there. And so Edwards describes heaven as a society of holy beings and. You know, it's God the Father, God the Son. He speaks of them distinct from one another. Obviously, they are three persons in one being. He's, he's, you know, he hasn't denied that. But, but in the way that he construes heaven, it's sort of like the God the Father, God the Son, the Archangel Gabriel, uh, Jack, the uh, the janitor at my church who just went to be with God, um, the Apostle Paul. You know, you add all these other people, and they're all interacting with another. There are all these different lines of connection, and in that wonderful sermon. Heaven is a World of Love, that final sermon in his treatise on charity and its fruits, he describes how the joy of heaven is increased because each of these, each of these, these connections and relationships. So if, uh, if you are in, in glory, Tony, I'm not just going to be looking at God, I'm going to be looking at, at, at Tony's glory. And I'm going to be rejoicing in the joy that I see you having in God. And then some other person, some woman who is our sister in Christ from Africa, sees the joy that I have in you, and she rejoices to see that. And, and so you could begin drawing lines of connection and see that there are just, um, you know, this, this uh, incalculable number of different levels of, of connection and relationality. So this essentially relational way of looking at, uh, at the spiritual life is, is really finally consummated in heaven, and we don't, we're not able to fully experience that right, right here and right now because of the limitations of the present life. Heaven, Edwards also says, is a place where love for God can be fully expressed. And in his personal narrative, he said that there was this, like this flame inside of him of love for God that he felt was locked up and was hindered and choked out. And he said he longed for heaven as a place where it would just flame out and he would be able to fully express what he sensed was, was already burning within him. So it's a, it's a beautiful picture. Amen. It sure is. And of course, for Edwards, this is all rooted in the Trinity. Yeah, it all starts with, with, the, with, the, with Father, Son, and Spirit. Father, you know, to go back to Augustine's analogy that Edwards picks up and develops, God is the eternal lover, the Son is the eternal beloved, and the Spirit is himself love in personal form between the Father and the Son. 
That was Dr. Michael McClymond from his residence in New Haven, Connecticut. Dr. McClymond is the author of the new book, The Theology of Jonathan Edwards, which he co-authored with Dr. Gerald McDermott. This conversation on the Trinity focused on chapter 13 of that book, found on pages 193 to 206. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Authors on the Line podcast. The free Authors on the Line podcast is supported, produced, and distributed by Desiring God in Minneapolis. You can subscribe and find a full archive of episodes by searching for Authors on the Line in iTunes, or you can watch for new episodes online at desiringgod.org backslash blog. I'm your host, Tony Ranke. Thanks for listening.